Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. <laughs> and I'm Erica. Um, so this week we are wrapping up a series that we have been in for a while. We started it in Advent with talking about saints that we celebrate in the season of Advent. And then we went into things we often avoid in Christmas tide. And so this week is the week that we celebrate Epiphany. And so we are going to be talking a little bit about what that means and, you know, some of the stories that we hear about in Epiphany Tide and also how we can apply that to everyday life. Oh, I'm sorry. I talked a little bit <laughs> more about what I was supposed to. Here you go right ahead, Eric. That's okay. So Epiphany uh, is based, uh, the day itself is, is kind of based off when the Magi came to visit Jesus. But condensing time a little bit, right? Yes. We said last week it may have taken two years. We get 12 days after Christmas is now Epiphany. That's our way of doing liturgical two years later. Because we can't do it every other year the Magi right. show up. Um, it just doesn't, it would really confuse people and um, myself included. So Epiphany, you know, comes from that idea, from the Magi coming and visiting Messiah, partially because of the star that shows up in the sky. Um, but today, we want to not just look at that story, but we want to look at some of the stories, and I'm going to turn over my Lutheran friends for this, because they're the um, uh, lectionary people. <laughs> some of the stories that show up in these first few weeks of, of any new year, um, they're all about revealing who Jesus is. Because that's really what the Magi do. They reveal who Jesus is, or at least Jesus is revealed to them. Yeah. And maybe that's a, word, uh, a moment to be even back up and say the word epiphany uh, is, is one of those rarely used words, maybe in regular conversation outside of church. It's one of those, I had a neat idea, I had it, and I say, I had an epiphany. But like, what, what, what is the, the word itself? What does that idea even really mean? How does that help us locate what are we talking about here? Well, Epiphany, um, and without looking it up, you know, on Webster.com or something, is just a revelation, you know, um, a coming to light. Yeah, yeah. You know, and when we use that word, you know, I had an epiphany. Well, you know, we get that image of the light bulb coming on over somebody's head. Yeah, and I think there's even a sense of, in the in the roots of the word, even I think, because Epiphany has, has Greek roots, I think there's a sense of, like, shining out or shining forth or something mm-hmm. like that. So, in... in in um, church nerds speak, we go, oh, the shining forth, like, oh, like the star of Bethlehem, oh, like the Magi. But it's not just because there happens to be a star in that story. Mm-hmm. It's about, here's this moment where what God's up to in this random backwoods town in Judea gets made known to people very far away and becomes sort of a touchstone, if you will, for, like, this is how God's operating. God is revealing what God's up to uh, to more and more people in wider and wider circles. And that if, if like, you had to ask, why is the story of the Magi important? It's not just, oh, because that's neat because they gave free presents or something, and that's why we give presents or something. But it's more about, oh, this is God revealing or showing God's activity in the world to people who wouldn't have gotten it, who wouldn't have been paying attention otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. I, like, I think that's a recurring thing both in the manger story that Luke gives at the birth of Jesus and the, the um, Magi story too, is that nobody is paying attention. God has to call our attention to what's happening. And again, this is different than all the religious artwork where the beam of light and the you know, gold circle around people's heads says, hey, this is an important moment. Um, and even our, our hymnody, you know, like a lot of our hymns kind of sentimentalize or carol sentimentalize like, and the animals knew this was a special child. No, 
the, the donkey and the sheep and the whatever animals are there, they were munching on straw like they always do because they're not super animals. They're not talking animals. This is not that story. This is regular animals, and the people didn't get it. Um, they're, they're living this out, figuring this out as they go along, and God has to send angels and shepherds and stars and magi to say, hey, people, something important is happening. It's not that everybody sort of felt a, a special feeling in the air. Oh, I bet the Messiah is being born tonight. We, we, we do kind of sentimentalize it, but I think that gives us too much credit. I think much more the story of the gospel is human beings are dense, and we're too occupied with our rectangles of technology or other things to pay attention when God's doing something. So God has to tap us on the shoulder and speak the language that we speak. And another great example of God having to kind of slap us upside the head yeah. is another epiphany story, which is the baptism of Jesus. Yeah. And like a dove descends from heaven and a voice says, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. So then that way everybody knows, oh, something, something's happening. This isn't just another random guy getting baptized. This is, this guy's special. I mean, a voice just declared him. Right. His son. Right. So something special's happening. Yeah, and I, I think that's a, a good way of, of understanding that story, too, that it's almost like um, in in the lived history of the moment or in the storytelling, the gospel is giving, getting out their highlighter and going like, here's the story. I'm going to underline here what's happening so you all get it. This is an important scene. This is why. So of all the things the voice can say from heaven, it's not, here's more commandments, or it's not, here's how to get to heaven, or here's the perfect prayer. It's, this is my son. This is the one pay attention to. So it's this sort of revealing or, or making known what uh, what was already true. I think that's an important thing. It's not that at this moment Jesus becomes God's son, but the declaration is, you are my son. This is my son. Hey, everybody, pay attention to this one. Watch him. Wherever he goes, there's God in action. And I think that's almost the way you have to treat that baptism story. And even really the birth and the epiphany story with the Magi, too. It's almost like a... Uh, you know, highlighting. See this guy wherever he goes. That's God's presence now. And so, when this when this child, when this grown up, when this rabbi goes and eats at the tax collector's house, that's God eating with the you know the people who weren't mm-hmm. good enough. And when this guy goes touches lepers to make them clean, that's God doing that. Even though oh, God's not allowed to touch the unclean. That's sort of the idea, so that we will recognize in all these places where respectable gods aren't supposed to be. Yep, there is God, and we're supposed to see it now clearly. Um, so, so the, the story of the, the Magi story, we kind of talked about the, the details of it uh, in a previous episode, but the, the point of that story, much like the baptism story, is about revealing who Jesus is. I think that's an important move, that it's not about saying God wasn't here before and now God is, but more about saying God was here already and we were not paying attention. Uh, we were looking the other way or something. Like, um, in, in a way, even though this is at the tail end of the story, Luke does something similar at the... Um, Road to Emmaus story, right? Where that Jesus has been walking with the two disciples the whole time, and it's at the end when their eyes are open and they go, "Oh my goodness, Jesus has been here all along." That in a sense, like that's what the whole story of the gospel is. It's not God is can only be in one place for a while. Here, Jesus is God's presence here on earth, but before that, God wasn't here. But God fills all creation. There, there ain't no place that God ain't already. Um, but God shows up in this definitive clear way in the person of Jesus um, but it's not like this is the first time God has visited or that God that God is one who requires visiting you know mm-hmm. like uh, I keep thinking in the back of my head how much of my early theology as like a teenager was 
shaped by that um, George Burns movie, Oh God, uh, where uh, George Burns shows up as God to John Denver. Nobody knows this movie? No. No. Okay, we'll go rent this movie sometime, and then you'll, you'll get how skewed my theology was for a while. But the, the gist is that John Denver uh, hears this voice from God, who's played by George Burns, and like God sort of like his message is, I'm here. And I care, and that's all my message. But like that, God has to from time to time appear, uh, and then like pop, pops away, you know, disappears, and, and goes back up to heaven. Um, and that that's not the way the the biblical story goes. It's not that God uh, is one place or another, and most of the time is in heaven and then comes down. But that uh, that and then that sort of treats heaven like it's a different geographical location uh, rather than that God is beyond our concept of space and time. So that when God, when we talk about God being incarnate in Jesus, it's not not that God stops being in heaven, whatever that means, too. I mean, I think sometimes our, our way of talking about it is like that. Um, maybe even because we, we get the up and down language in the in the creed about he ascends into heaven and he descends it, and like, okay, but that doesn't really mean he left, he wasn't in heaven anymore, or he stopped being present here on earth, but that in all places, in every molecule of all creation, all the, the, the universe at all time, God is present, but now in this human life, God is present in a way that, like, we can put our finger on and go, oh, there you are, and now we can catch all these other places. That that's really what what epiphany is about these moments where our eyes are opened not that god travels um and if that's the way we hear it that's going to change the way a lot of these stories here to us Mm -hmm. um another one that comes to my mind that often uh we lectionary folks hear uh early on in this time of year is the a lot of first like the calling of the first disciples or the first miracle story the 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 sign of the wedding in canaan galilee jesus first sermon in nazareth um are there things in any of those stories that leap out that seem like they're they're important as firsts like like if this is if this is the gospel writers helping us get to know jesus i think um and help me out here, because again, I'm not a lectionary preacher, and so I'm not in these texts as often as you all are. Um, I'm thinking of the story of the wedding in Canaan, uh-huh. and, and how Mary is the one that kind of prompts Jesus yep. uh, to do what he does. Yep. And and just the idea that Mary recognizes, I mean, from the moment that you know she conceived, who this child would be, and now she realizes, okay, he's, a, he's an adult now, he is grown, he is building um, his ministry. And, and so, you know, Mary kind of pushing him, even though he says, you know, woman, it's not my time. Right. You know, Mary's kind of pushing him. And just, and I find that a very interesting <clears throat> concept in, in that story. Yeah. And it, it's tough because we kind of want to make, we want to, we want to, like, uh, absolutize the story and make it like that Jesus, this all-knowing person, must have sketched out exactly what his first miracle would be. And, he, and like this story has the, has the feeling of being very ad hoc and impromptu, mm-hmm. that had things gone differently, Jesus might not have done this particular miracle. Whereas other scenes, it seems like Jesus is deliberately setting, you know, like when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, there's times you know he's provoking people. You know he's setting it up, yeah. and he, like he deliberately heals in this moment, and he's trying to pick a fight. Or he's trying, or uh, when the feeding of the 5,000, the gospel writers will say he knew what he was going to do. He had this all you know, figure it out. Um, but the the Cana story, it feels very like, and it's 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 funny because the stakes are comparatively lower than raising mm-hmm. the dead. You know, like we ran out of wine. Well, okay. I mean, like I'm sad for the family who would be ashamed otherwise. But increasing people's alcohol consumption doesn't feel as cosmically important as raising Lazarus from the dead or feeding thousands of people who would have gone hungry otherwise. And yet, there's this sense of that 
Jesus even cares about this. That's I mean that th- this is the kind of God we have who shows up. Yeah, even in the celebration of a wedding, um, and cares about things like this. This poor family. They would have been absolutely you know the laughing stock. They would have absolutely been shamed if they had run out of wine. If their you know guests wouldn't have helped. I mean the, the whole village would have been shamed in all this. So the, the stakes are there, but there it's not life and death. There's this sort of social reality that Jesus cares about, and I, I, I think in a way that is. The gospel writer is saying this is about this is also what Jesus has come for. He's come for raising the dead, absolutely, but also <clears throat> Jesus cares about celebration, and that Jesus cares about not people being not put to shame. That Jesus care that cares about not stigmatizing people. Like, yep, this is all part of the project that Jesus is up to, um, and that 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 is meant to be sort of a first impression, even if it wouldn't have been Jesus scripted first moment or first big sign or something. And it's not. That story, you know, the shame and everything that's equated with that story, if Jesus would not have performed that miracle, is not as mucky and as as nasty as some of the stories we talked about last week. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. With the martyrdoms and things. But right. still, it's a level of humanity that yeah. Jesus is willing to put himself into. Right, right. And I think that's, that's maybe the tension that all the gospel writers, all the Bible itself wants to, to say, is that this is a God who enters into all the mess of humanity at every level of our messiness. The the, the big, you know, the, the life and death moments, but also the plain, ordinary inconveniences and difficulties. There's no part, there's nothing too mundane or ordinary or worldly mm-hmm. for God to get invested in. And that, I mean, that's, that's a big deal, because we're used to saying, well, God shows up on the mountaintop, you know, and we even talk about, like, the transfiguration story, but, you know, I had this mountaintop experience, so that, that's where you meet God up there, or on personal retreat, or, uh, you know, I had these... You know, particular times of prayer and quiet, and I lit the candle and I had the incense, and that's where God shows up. And instead, we get, yeah, God's there, God's on the mountain, but God's also down in the valley and at the wedding party and you know, on a cross and all these places that there's nowhere that isn't uh, open to or, or present to uh, the living God. Yeah, we tend to put God, you know, we have those mountaintop, <clears throat> those transfiguration moments, we right. have those valley of the shadow of death moments, we right. know God is in those moments. <clears throat> right. But in anything on that hillside in between those two, right. we're like, is God here? Does right. God show up in our ordinary, everyday moments? And the wedding in Cana is very clearly one of those instances. Yeah. And even when we're in the valley, those deep valley moments, the way we expect God to show up is, get me out of here. That I will notice God's presence has got to be lifting me, elevating me up to taking me to the mountain. And the idea that God shows up in the flat level ordinary places or even sometimes walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and we're there for a while... That, I think that's an important notion. It, it's it, it's counterintuitive because we're used to it. God is up there, and maybe there will be these handful of moments in my life where I'll meet God in these you know high point moments. It's interesting to me how much <clears throat> in the early, early, early stories like in. Genesis, where you get these sort of encounters between the patriarchs and uh, God, they're often, you know, it's mountain experiences, it's, it's you know, Jacob at, at Bethel, it's uh, these moments where the, the divine and the human meet and touch, even like Jacob's ladder vision. I'm seeing these angels and, uh, and ascending and descending, like, as though God is up and I'm down here and we have to find these meeting points. And, in a sense, it's almost like those stories are phase one of the way the story goes. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, God sort of breaks that open and goes, it was never really that I'm up and you're down, but that um, I'm present in even the mucky stuff in the in the middle and I'm, I'm there in the valley and all, all along, but our brains take a while to catch up. So God's, okay, you need to picture me up on the mountain? Sure, I'm up on the mountain. <laughs> I'm also down there in the bottom, but <clears throat> yeah, I'm, sure, I'm up there, uh, Moses, up there when you're getting the commandments, but I'm also down at the bottom of the mountain while you're, you know, making golden calves. <laughs> 
And we feel like we have to set up these circumstances for God right. to show up. And it makes me think of um, Wesley, my older brother in the faith, and his um, heart strangely worn moment. It was uh, the story goes. It, it's called Aldersgate uh, for us. He he unwillingly went to a meeting of the Moravians on Aldersgate Street in London, and um, the, the unwillingly is part. <coughs> We often don't focus on, but I'm thinking about that, though, as we're talking here. He unwillingly went, and as he went there, um, someone was reading Luther's preface to the Romans. A classic. Um, (laughs) And, you know, he had this encounter with God that just, and he realized, oh, yes, I am saved, and God has Mm -hmm. saved me. You know, sometimes we we try to set up those experiences. You know, we go on those personal retreats, we, we go off, and we spend time alone with God, and we expect God to meet with us because it's just us and God. Right. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. It reminds me, too, this is not exactly an epiphany story, except it's almost like the Old Testament anti-epiphany story. Um, (laughs) That story of of, uh, Elijah, uh, he's running for his life. Uh He runs away because he's afraid that uh, the king and the queen are going to get rid of him. They want to kill him because he's uh, spoken against them. And he runs out to the mountain. And the the text says it's the same mountain, Mount Horeb, where... um, uh, Moses had gone and met God, you know, and gotten the commandments. So he's gone to the right spot. If you're going to meet God, and there's a cave there, and so and uh, there's a there's what the the earthquake and it text says, and God wasn't in the earthquake, and there's a whirlwind, and God's not in the whirlwind, and there's a fire, and God's not in the fire, and then different translations say it differently, but either the sound of sheer silence or the still small voice that God is is present and. It's almost in this nothingness, and uh, God speaks. He wraps himself in his mantle, Elijah does, and he goes out. And God's message isn't like some new transformative spiritual insight either. It's not, now, Elijah, I've given you the new, this new prayer practice, or here's these, you know, try this biblical diet, or here's the five new ways to make me show up in your life more. It, basically, God says, what are you still whining about? Get back to the work I've already given you. <laughs> it's, it's like the worst pep talk in the Bible. Um, but that's because, like, it, God's point is, like, you didn't need something new from me. You thought you needed a, a supernatural show. You thought you needed, no, I never left you. I, there was never a point where I wasn't with you, Elijah. You thought you needed to run away and get to the place that was closer to God. There's no place you can get that is more or less closer, far from God. We have this way of sort of imagining that there are geographical locations or things I have to do and it's more about our, our vision in a sense. It's more about whether we are conscious of or perceptive of the presence of God in all things, but it's a lot less that it's, it's a lot less about I have to get to the right place or do the right thing or say the right words and then God will come near. God never left. We're, if, if we feel distant, we're the ones who walked away. <laughs> so you said about being perceptive and, and about seeing and, and being on the lookout for God. As we're starting a new year, you know, we're just like a week into the new year. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that we, um, as Christians, can be looking and keeping our eyes out for God in 2019. Yeah, and I think that's like the the $50,000 question, is to be able to take these biblical stories and say, great, now so what? Where where am I going to see God around us? And that we we misunderstand or, or limit the stories if we just say, well, God showed up here and here and here and here. These are the only places God showed up, and I have nothing to say about the where God is now. But yeah, to let these stories be springboards for us about how and where we look for God. So I don't know. What, what do you think, Sarah? Where 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 do we look for God around us, or how 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 can we try and be conscious of God's presence? Well, I think what we were talking about with the wedding at Cana about how that was a moment where it's not a hilltop, it's not the deepest, darkest valley. It's just everyday life, you know, of getting, you know, married, having children, people dying, um, living out your everyday life. It's being aware that God is present in those moments. Um, and that, 
you know, it's in the people you meet. It's in the, um, you know, small, small, still voices in our lives um, that God is present with us always. So um, maybe step one is instead of uh, training our eyes only to look at particular places and saying, oh, well, God's only eligible to be present on Sunday mornings in church mm-hmm. or God's only going to be there um, if, in quiet prayer time or when, when the kids are all quiet and I'm in a right peaceful state of mind or something like that, um, to say everywhere is fair game for recognizing. Yeah, and I mean, granted, it's easiest, I think, to see God in those moments of like Sunday morning in church or whatever. Um, I know that's true in my life. Um, you know, we have a, my husband and I have a toddler son. We're both pastors at different churches. So, you know, the question every Sunday is, and Saturday night is, well, what are we going to do with Robbie? Mm-hmm. And it's oftentimes one of us will take him to church with us, and then whoever is available and willing to sit next to a very squirmy toddler who tries to play Houdini mm-hmm. and escape from them and go see mommy or daddy up at the pulpit, you know, that's that's our every weekend. <laughs> um, and But it's... You know, recognizing that, oh, this person is willing to sit with my very squirmy, kind of naughty toddler, and that's a gift. And in that moment, I see God in the face of that person who's willing to sit with my naughty toddler. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an easy, I see it every week, mm-hmm. God moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is on Sunday morning at church. But it's also, you know, seeing that person on Wednesday, which is always for pastors, that hectic, crazy day of there's always just everything on Wednesdays. Um, you know, seeing that person who's willing to, you know, just stop you and say, How are you today? Mm-hmm. And that's another God moment for me of being able to see God's love shining through somebody else for me mm-hmm. um, is just in somebody being willing to stop and sincerely ask me, How are you today? Mm-hmm. I know this is a crazy day for you. How are you? I think for me, one of those, um, those little God moments, but it's definitely a God moment nonetheless. It's just those everyday conversations that I have with my parishioners. Mm-hmm. You're not the ones where you, when you're in the hospital with them and you're talking right. about what's going on or not the ones where you're, you're talking church business. But like at my church, we have um, Sunday school classes after worship and um, we don't really have an adult class right now. And so I often I'll go downstairs and I'll sit with whatever adults aren't with our wee little ones. Mm-hmm. Like mom and dad or grandma and grandpa usually help with the wee little ones in their Sunday school class. But if both parents or both grandparents are there, there's only really room for one of them to be in the room. And so I'll just sit down and I'll have a conversation just about the weather, about life. And it's just, it, it's, it's neat because it's a way for me to build a relationship with my people that... I don't get standing mm-hmm. in a pulpit on Sunday morning right. and preaching at them and talking at them. You know, it's just a way to live life together. It's kind of like you're, you know, when your parishioners come up to you and say, how are you? Mm-hmm. And really care and really mean it. So one thing I'm noticing is, uh, hearing both of you describe this, is that um, it's possible to then recognize uh, Christ's presence in other p- people who are like the some other person comes up and does something gracious or, or says something gracious to you and, if you and you look back and you go, oh my goodness, Christ was present in that other person for me. And sometimes it's almost like in the in-between between us in the course of conversation that it's not like one of us is Jesus and the other one isn't, but it's like somehow Christ is present in, in between, in the space in between us in that conversation. Um, and maybe it's important too to say, um, uh, again, our, maybe our... our uh, 
Protestant impulse for humility needs to like have a pause for a moment and to say Christ also reserves the right to be present in us, even though yep we're gonna mess up, we're gonna be you know we're gonna make mistakes, or whatever. But it's also true to say somebody at the end of their day could look back and see you as the answer to where Christ was in their life, and that all these are true at the same time. Um, it's not that Christ is either that when two people meet, Christ is one or the other, but it's possible that um, I look at this encounter and go. The other person was being Christ for me. And they look at the encounter and they go, "That uh, yeah, I was Christ for them. And that it's possible also Christ is in that space between us at the same time. Um, but that, that requires us to sort of get beyond just sort of a one place or the other kind of locational thinking about God. That God is either... You know, like like the the, the shell game. You know, the uh, where where's the where's the marble? You know, under the under which cup or whatever. It's not like God is only in one place or another, but it's possible to say that Christ is present in any and all these things, um, and that being able to recognize it uh, is the challenge. Yeah. So this conversation reminds me of a quote from Mother Teresa that I really like: um, "Seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, in His hand in every happening." This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world. Seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread. This isn't the quote I thought it was going to be (laughs) (laughs) as I'm finishing it. Um, But anyway, there's a quote by Mother Teresa where she basically says that you see the face of God in the face of those who God has commanded you to care about. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, the the poor, the hungry, the the naked, Mm -hmm. the sick. and, but I think, yeah, especially those people, but also just God commands us to love everyone. Right. Whether it's um, somebody you have a close relationship with or somebody who you really don't like at all. But, you know, that's who you see yeah. the face of God in. And the, I think we we sometimes get more comfortable looking for God in one side of the equation or the other. That we sometimes get in the... Um, I'm the I'm going to be the one who helps somebody else. So I'll be Jesus for somebody else. We can get really comfortable. I'm the helper, so that mm-hmm. that must be where God is. Or the flip side, we can be in the position of um, I, the God's in the face of the poor person or the other person that I help, um, and it almost becomes kind of a self-serving. So I'm supposed to help them in order for me to meet God. And it's right. it's sort of like God can be in all these places at once. And at the very moment, I think I have the arrow figured out. It goes from me, I'm supposed to be God in this situation, to this other person, God reserves the right to surprise us and go, nope, that person was the blessing for me, and and, and vice versa at the same time. We in the one church I serve go to a nearby mental hospital a couple of times a year, and we'll have... Um, worship and snacks and food with uh, the the patients there who are like long-term resident, like sometimes years and years uh, uh, at, at this uh, particular state mental hospital. And it's funny, anytime there are new folks in the church who come, uh, that we sort of, they sort of get the idea of, okay, we're supposed to be church folk, we're going to go there and be nice, you know, this is our service mm-hmm. project for other people. And how often the stories come back of like, man, I, it was so cool, I felt God was there. And that it, it it's it's not just, we're, we're the helpful people, we're going to go bring God to the place where God isn't, but we're we're going there trying to be agents of blessing, and we also discover that we're blessed at the same time, and both are true at the same time. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of my mission trips that I've done over the years. Sure. You, know, you go on a mission trip, whether it's stateside or, or overseas, and I've gone to rebuild after Katrina and worked in Paraguay, and you, you go there to, to be Christ for these people, and yet I, I, come, I have come home from every mission trip I've ever gone on 
realizing that they were just as much Christ for me right. as I was mm. for them. And that I think that awareness really changes the dynamic because otherwise it can come across very much like you poor slobs, you don't, you can't do anything right. We're here to fix mm-hmm. you, and how convenient then that we have nothing to learn from you. We're here to you know, and at the same time. Yeah, if you've got resources and somebody else's house has been blown apart by a storm, yes, the proper thing to do. Someone should help. Um, but to discover that it's sort of that Christ in the space between us, too, that Christ is there uh, and that it's a holy thing for me to walk with you if you're the one who's hurting. But also, there's a gift that if you're the one who's the recipient of whatever the help or the mission trip is, you're extending a hospitality as well. And that... Um, uh, it's important to recognize that as well. It it takes great courage and grace to be able to welcome and let someone come and share your your suffering or your your need or your situation as much as it takes courage to go to some strange exotic new place and I'm going to be the one who and to recognize Christ is present there already and my job is not to go to a place that Jesus isn't but Jesus is there already. The work has already begun. I'm joining in what Jesus is up to with the people who are there, with the people who are coming all around and that changes the conversation. I think in a sense that's really what the stories uh, of Epiphany are all meant to, to help practice uh, our, our the minds of our hearts, the vision of our hearts to be able to see all the time so that we discover there's no place where God can't break out uh, you know, where we least expect. Um, and that Jesus sort of gives us a, a heads up of the kinds of places he's expecting to show up, like his first sermon in Nazareth where he said, you know, quotes from Isaiah and says, uh, you know, the, it's, it's about announcing the, the year of the Lord's favor and recovery of the sight of the blind and lifting up the oppressed and binding up the brokenhearted. There is where to start to look, but that means like anywhere and everywhere are places we might recognize the presence of God all around us. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, then yeah, on an ordinary Tuesday afternoon, Christ is present, and on an ordinary Wednesday morning and Sundays and everywhere else in between, Maybe this is a place for us to challenge one another and folks who are listening to say, deliberately in this week, keep your eyes open. And if if our days start with, and maybe even if we need to remind ourselves at midday and whatever, like, but to start with the assumption, God's out there. It's not a matter of whether God is or isn't present. It's assume God is out there. Will I have the eyes to recognize what God's up to around me? How would I recognize it? What things... Uh, have the distinct imprint of Jesus has been here. Where do we see divine fingerprints on things? And maybe to tell those stories that is somewhere down there, tell, tell someone the story of where you saw God at work in the course of this day or this week. Um, and if we took the time to tell those stories to one another, um, we might again be able more and more and more to see the epiphanies of God that are happening all around us. All right. Well, I'm willing to try that there. <laughs> keep keep your eyes open, everybody. We'll uh, we'll join you next time. Thanks for listening. See y'all. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.